Hi there, and welcome back to the SMB Cybercast podcast, where it's all about helping small and medium enterprises and IT professionals learn cybersecurity, improve their defenses, and prevent breaches. If you want to take the security of your organization to the next level, then this is the right place for you. Welcome, and thanks for listening. This show is sponsored by CyberX. CyberX is a cybersecurity agency that specializes in the needs of small and medium enterprises. We believe that everyone is at the risk of attack these days, and that's obvious from the increase in attacks across the board. So if your company needs help with compliance, security, managed security operations, penetration testing, vulnerability management, or any other security need, feel free to reach out to us. You can send us a message at cyberx.tech/contact. That's cyberx.tech/contact. All right, let's get back to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. We are super excited to be back with you. Uh, we have some amazing guests today, and we are going to have a great episode. Um, we're going to be talking about challenging the cybersecurity system and why. Security awareness does not necessarily mean security action. Um, this is an issue we see in a lot of organizations, even organizations we deal with. Um, I think probably security uh, architects and engineers and uh, people all over the country and over the world will agree that just because someone knows what's right to do doesn't mean they know they do what's right. Um, I think, frankly, probably some of us security people even do it ourselves. We skip, take shortcuts. So... Uh, we've got some spectacular guests. Um, we have Adam Gordon and we have Chris Fullen uh, with our the CyberX team, uh, Bill and myself. And we're going to have an excellent discussion and we hope you enjoy it. Guys, welcome. Thanks for hey, having everybody. me. So we've had you on, Adam, before. How, how about you give us just a quick intro, what, who you are and what you do before we get into the content. Sure, absolutely. It's always uh, great to spend time with you guys, and thank you for the opportunity to come back and uh, not only spend time with you, but hang out and talk with Chris as well about this topic. So I have been in IT uh, for over 35 years. I'm an IT consultant focused in the security and risk management space and infrastructure spaces. Uh, I work for IT Pro TV these days, uh, primarily creating educational content for them, but I also still am a consultant in the field. Uh, and uh, if it breaks, I can probably fix it. <laughs> and Chris? Yes, uh, so I'm a cyber risk consultant. I like to focus in that realm between uh, traditional infrastructure and cloud security and helping organizations with their digital transformation and minimizing risk while they do so. Great. So, so like I said in the intro, we're going to be talking about why Security awareness doesn't necessarily mean security action, but could one of you or both of you tell us, because uh, you guys brought this topic to us, um, this is something you guys wanted to discuss. Can you tell us where this conversation came from? Yeah, maybe I can just jump in quickly and sure. give you a little bit. And I know Chris, um, I'm sure we'll want to chime in here as well, because the initial idea actually came from him. Uh, but Chris had uh, posted something very interesting on LinkedIn. We're, we're connected on LinkedIn and we see each other's posts. And he had posted uh, an observation about some information in an article about how to manage uh, 
an element of risk with regards to metadata and um, potential exposure of information, right, as we post data and communicate and collaborate. And I had commented on it and suggested that there might be a broader thought process around that. And how could we broaden that and maybe see it uh, in some specific silos? I used Office 365 document fingerprinting as the example that we started discussing. And we both thought it was interesting. And then we started talking about some other aspects of his thought process. And, and I really kind of broadened the conversation out around this idea of just because we're aware of things from a security awareness perspective, we don't always do the things we're supposed to do, as you pointed out in the intro. And we spent some time chatting about that and thought it was kind of an interesting topic. And that's, that's kind of how we wound up here. Yeah, and to to take that and start jumping from off from that, um, an easy example is around password management. We've sure. all heard many different things about what we should and shouldn't do with passwords, and yet it happens over and over and over again. And even when it comes to enabling multi uh, multi-factor authentication, um, that's becoming more and more popular. But you, you're still finding that even though these services are becoming more ubiquitous and available, that companies, individuals, they're still not enabling them and still going with their um, poor password practices that just uh, compound the issue. So do you think that comes from an inconvenience or is it just, what are, what are, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, I, yeah, it's a little bit of an inconvenience, but I think you need a culture change around it. Um, in the past, you used to have just a, a bank card and you didn't have a pin on it. And then it, it was shown that by having a, a pin on your debit card, it makes it a little more secure. And in the beginning, people didn't really want to trust credit cards because what's this piece of plastic that <laughs> can spend thousands of dollars and I don't really feel it disappear. Well, they eventually came around to that. And I think we're going to have to have that same cultural level evolution when it comes to password management and um, using different technologies to identify and authenticate us. That's a great point. So let me let me maybe offer a counterpoint, right, to Chris's observation. So I'm all in for culture. Don't get me wrong. And William, you, you certainly know because you've heard me talk about it before that I think security awareness is, is important and the culture of security we create in an organization is one of the fundamental building blocks, right, to risk mitigation as we talked about it the last time I was on with you guys. So I, I fully am in the same camp as you and, and as Chris on this. But I, I also see, and Chris and I were chatting about this before we actually came on to get ready for the podcast. I also see this really interesting, but I think also very, very unsettling and, and um, unclear trend as I deal with customers. And I think the problem that sits behind this idea of, yeah, let's create a culture of security and that shift is going to help us to get better, right? I think this is the unsettling issue here, the unspoken kind of dark force that hovers around the edges of that thought process and unfortunately makes it less successful than we hope for, is that I think a lot of companies just view that idea as being the end of the road, right? As opposed to the beginning right. of the journey. And like a silver bullet. We've all talked about this, both in podcasts and in writing and all the things we all do, right? Not just as we spend time talking to each other, but with customers. And in my case, with students as I teach. 
And, you know, you tell people this, they look you in the eye and it, it sounds to them like it makes sense. And I think they think it makes sense, but then somehow magically something that happens and it just disappears. And I, I've been pondering a lot about this. And I think because of some things that have happened recently with some customers and some interactions I've had with, with vendors and things like that, you know, it's become more clear to me that I, I think we are missing a piece, right, that allows us to translate that thought into good action. You know, good thoughts are great, but good action, unfortunately, doesn't always derive from them. And, and I think that customers and, and all of us to some extent, to your point and Chris's point, because we all suffer from this, even though we know better at certain points, you know, I think we all unfortunately do take things for granted at a certain level. But I think we also think that the other person is going to do something. This phenomenon we often hear about, about the bystander, right? Uh, phenomenon where everybody watches something happen, but nobody acts because they think all the other people will. And I do think that we suffer from that in, in this area um, because I do think everybody sees risk, but nobody is willing to act because they think the other people are more qualified and or better positioned to deal with it. And as a result, nobody does. And this is why I think we have a lot of these issues. Yeah, I definitely see that with customers thinking about and looking to migrate to the cloud. They think that simply being in the cloud, that everything's all magically secured. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Just because you have your data in the cloud doesn't mean that the cl cloud provider is going to be securing it. Right. You still have to be securing it and they'll, they'll just provide you the resources to house it there. The rest is still on you. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. Well, I mean, the cloud is really just an extension of your own environment in many respects, right? And you're just transferring that risk to an unknown third party, unknown in the right. sense that you don't have a direct connection to the cloud provider. I think there's a few ways to approach, I guess, like everything in IT and security. There's a few ways to approach this. Um, and on a few episodes back, we interviewed Perry Carpenter from Nobefore. You guys familiar with him? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He wrote the book, Transfer transformational security awareness yes um, and one of the things we discussed on that episode and i thought was very interesting is he talked about for one making security controls convenient for the end user because if it's not convenient they're not going to do it um, and two he talked about bringing the awareness instead of being a formal training in a classroom or you watch a video bringing the training to the end, end user at the point of the decision. Um, so, for example, uh, he gave was when the user goes to throw the documents in the waste bin, have a sign above the waste bin saying, remember, this goes to the shredding. Yeah, that, definitely. And and I see other companies, for example, um, they'll have that awareness within the the email client. Hey, you're right. about to click on a link. Right. That link that link's a little bit suspicious. Do you really want to click on it? And kind of provides that training there. And that's how I really got into the industry. I was helping someone on the help desk and they had their password um, stick, sticky tape to their monitor. And I'm like, uh, there's got to be more secure <laughs> ways to do this. And you're like, well, this is just the most convenient way for me. And I have to type it in all the time. And they make me make it so long that I don't remember it. So this is what I do. And that that got me started about 10 years ago down this road. And on your point about the passwords, so uh, a way to make this easier for the end user uh, to use their awareness. All right. So when it's 
the three month cycle is up and it's or whatever the period you choose is, and it's time to recycle your passwords. Have a two minute video showing the end users how to use one, a password manager, or two, how to create passwords that are complex but yet easy to remember. Well, even the the guidance on that's really changing. Uh, right. Nest has changed their guidance on on password cycling, and they'd rather you have a, a complex password that's easier to remember, that's unique. But unless there's evidence of compromise um, somehow, that you don't necessarily need to change it. Um, <laughs> Back to Adam's point, as we were talking to earlier, uh, sometimes that evidence of compromise is harder to get. So yeah. you still might have to fall back to your, your rotation periods. But um, it, we don't necessarily need to have that rotation if you can monitor the rest of your environment and say, hey, no, there's been this is a unique password. There's been no breaches. There's been no malicious activity or, or suspicious activity from this account. Uh, they, they could probably keep it for a little bit longer. Right. True. So this yeah. brings up this brings up an interesting point. Right? And I actually drafted some of our, our thought processes right when we introduced the idea for the podcast to you, William, around this exact thing. Right. Because one of the things I pointed out. Is that, you know, we don't really have a common sense litmus test we often apply to these scenarios, right? And Chris just made my argument for me, right? Because he was talking about this and said, well, you know, NIST changed their guidance recently and said, well, maybe you don't have to change passwords as often because if they haven't been compromised, probably still good. That leaves out the whole conversation about whether passwords in the first place are still viable. But let, <laughs> let's assume for a minute they're an aspect of right. identity management that we think is, is at least in some level still appropriate. Right. The whole MFA conversation, notwithstanding. But you know, the idea that you would wait for an entity well-respected, globally recognized for the work they do, and rightly so, like NIST, to tell you that you should use a common sense approach and not just by rote because we've told you for decades that you should rotate passwords, that you should or shouldn't do it on a certain period of time based on the empirical evidence as opposed to somebody saying it just blows me away when I hear this and I talk to customers about this and say, well, but this is the latest guidance. This is what we should do. And, you know, if, if I told you to drive off the cliff because that's going to make you more secure because nobody can get to you while you're in free fall, does that mean it's a good idea? I mean, you know, that's what you're telling me you're going to do, right? So I wonder, and I really struggle with this, and I know we all do probably at some level. It's just that we have to restrain ourselves in front of customers. But I struggle when I sit in a room and I hear this from customers or I hear this from students, even more importantly, because they're going to become the tip of the spear. They're going to become us at some point when they go out in the real world and start to do this. And I struggle with the fact that we seem to divorce and package away and purposely turn off common sense when it comes to risk management and security in the broader context of the enterprise. I'm not saying everybody does, and I'm not saying that all companies are guilty of this, but this is about a human thing. This is not about a company thing. And I seem to find that more and more people tend to just simply be of the mindset that, well, somebody who in theory is somehow authoritative told us this, so that's just the new purple squirrel that we're going to chase, no matter what it is. I totally agree with you. It's the human. Uh, I, we just finished a pen test last week. Um, one of the people in scope for social engineering, what was an external pen test, was the vice president of compliance. And I fished him, got his username and password, 
And then I got into his account and he had two-factor authentication. So I called him up, said I was IT. We had a um, single sign-on uh, update go south and he was about to be locked out and I was going to send him a code. I needed to feed it so I could get it. Uh, set his account back up. Sure enough, he gave it to me. I'm in his account. <laughs> and that's the vice president of compliance. Yeah, of compliance. So it's a human issue for sure. Well, yeah. And, you know, again, right, we often – we laugh about it, and, and rightly so. At some level, it is funny. It's it's not a laughing matter, let me be clear, and I know we all know that because clearly, right, this is a major issue regardless of, of who's involved. But it is funny at some level when you step back away from it, but it also, aside from the title this person happened to have, right, you know, director well, of compliance. Right. And what made it so bad was every conversation I had with them, I said, yes, I, they wanted to be sure I was legit because they had been – there have been issues with social engineering before. Right. And, you know, this, the, right, this is the, the prototypical case study about common sense trumping or right. being trumped by everything else. But, you know, but the problem, I think, more broadly, and back to this idea of the systemic issues and the culture of security and awareness that we started with, right? Because I think this is a great way to tie some of this together. You know, there, there obviously is some break point because I'm sure this company, whoever they are, has some culture of security or they wouldn't have thought about having an external pen test to validate issues and tighten up their, their concerns in the first place. So there's obviously some level of awareness and some level of understanding. But at the same time, there are clearly these fundamental fissures and gaps that exist and the, the bridging that we hope is in place to, to link them clearly is, is failing. And, you know, I think that all the things we discussed, right, this idea of, well, let's let's create this culture, let's have this point of impact where users are acting, which I think is great, right? I think that stuff really works. But I think we then see that. And when I say we, I mean the royal we, right? Meaning the company and all the people that are, are telling the company what to do and how those things will happen. I think we see that as being enough. And you're beginning to describe the idea of defense in depth and these layers of overlapping, mutually reinforcing layers of controls. And as a result, hopefully a better outcome, but we stop. We stop short. We say, well, we put the video in the email stream to remind you to change your password, so that'll be enough. Well, clearly it's not enough, right? It's just one element, but I think we're missing the bigger picture. And I think that's one of the fundamental things that I'm struggling with is, and we all struggle with, right? How do we get the companies to see that it is an ever-present an ever ongoing issue? It's not a one-time fix. Yeah, I mean, and when it comes to budgeting and everything like that, that's that's the message that we do have to get across. Security isn't a project; it's a program. It continues forever. There's, it has to need continuous improvement, continuous evolution. Um, cultures will change, technologies will change, but security still needs to be embedded throughout the process. That's why I always like to start with people in process first and then layer in the technology where where needed in, into that. Right. And hopefully helping them to make that awareness or come to that so they can see you on that point before something bad happens and then they're running to recover and say, okay, now we need security. You know, so you got to see it. Find a way to have them see that before that happens. You know, it's, it's interesting, right, Chris, as you were saying that, it just, it really kind of, I think it clarified something for me, and, and I'll share the observation. I don't know if it, it makes sense to everybody else, but, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the fact that up until, let's say, maybe five or six, maybe you can even say now close to 10 years ago, as the cloud really started to emerge, right, as this 
this transitional and genre changing event in all of our lives that are in IT, um, it is a paradigm shift, right? And, and for whatever, whatever you think about the cloud, good, bad, or indifferent, it's changed fundamentally the face of, of IT and the data center. And, you know, when you think about the fact that up until, let's say, about eight to 10 years ago, as this really started to become a thing, you know, IT was pretty straightforward in the sense you went out every couple of years, you spent a bunch of money, you got a bunch of iron, you racked and stacked it, and then you managed it. And after that, you didn't really spend as much time and effort and money on it until the next you know, cycle, depending on your amortization, your depreciation, and how you dealt with gap and all that. It was probably three to five years, right? And as a result, um, I think security fell into that same mindset where we, we applied some security and risk mitigation at a certain point, especially as you brought new hardware and software into the organization. And then we felt it was just a matter of maintaining as opposed to continuing to understand how to evolve to the point we were making. And that transition to the cloud really has been a very different mindset for all of these areas. But I think it could be a different mindset for us in security because it does force us to rethink that idea of how we evolve because now it can be a commodity, but it's a commodity you have to refresh and focus on monthly if you think of it as an operational versus a capital expense. And if you make that connection, it becomes something you should be focusing on all the time. And yet still businesses haven't made that leap and really aren't understanding it, even though the transition around all the other things they do has really moved in that direction. So it's kind of an interesting thing, but we're still stuck in the same place. No, definitely agreed. I mean, when when you think about integrating secure practices into concepts like uh, development and operations or DevOps, that continue security needs to be continuously happening and you have to do it like um bill mentioned at the point of interaction but this point it's the point of interaction for the developers that you're helping them code securely at the time it's happening so prompting hey this uh, code that you're about to enter um might have some issues with it or at the time of compiling hey this code that you're compiling has these known issues you might want to fix them before you go any further and have that continuously happen and not just as in the traditional waterfall all at the end. Yeah, very true. Very true. The, the, the methodologies, right, like everything else, um, should shift and adjust. And, and we've seen a move away from some of those like waterfall, right, to things that are more DevOps and agile and, and you know, more, uh, I guess, focused on securing throughout the life cycle. All the, all the building blocks are, that's what I keep coming back to, right? All the things that we need in theory to make this work are there. And yet the, the glue or the binding that's supposed to hold them together, whatever you want to think of it as, right? Maybe it's the dark matter that we seem to be missing in the universe, but whatever it is, it, it doesn't seem to be working at some level because even though we have the things we need to be successful, clearly we're not. I mean, you know, all you have to do is look at the latest headlines and see that we're fighting a never-ending battle that we don't seem to be making any headway with with regards to breaches and risk mitigation. So it's that eternal struggle. I think it's also the technical debt. Um, like you mentioned, organizations haven't seen that security should be more forefront to them. And they have all this technical debt that has been building up over time that they're maybe not ready to repay or they can't afford to repay uh, until they have an event. And then they go, oh, wow, well, now I really need to do it because I'm all over the headlines, so I have to fix it. 
And then again, at that point, they're really still not believing it that they're doing damage control. And, and when everything goes back to normal, it's the same mentality again. Yeah, it seems like the idea of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me doesn't apply, right? Because we can continue to fool businesses. <laughs> and they have very short-term and short-horizon memory issues, I think, right? So right. It, it definitely is that, Bill. I think you're spot on with that because that is, unfortunately, we we all see it and we've seen it time and again. And, you know, it brings up another interesting point that I thought about and I, I scripted out a little dialogue about and some of the setup for this, which was that idea of the policy partnership that I, I floated in my notes. You have this idea of how you know, when we think of strategic imperatives in a business, right? And risk management and risk mitigation should be a strategic imperative. I don't think anybody would argue with that, but I don't think it's always treated that way to a lot of the points we've heard. I think it's treated as a reactive, right, solution, Bill and, and Chris, as you guys pointed out just now. And I think, unfortunately, it's also treated as a point in time solution, as we've all agreed on, instead of a long haul, let's apply it continuously, as Chris was advocating yeah, for, through a DevOps methodology, right, which is the right way to think of it. And because of that, I think this idea of policy partnerships really gets sidetracked where it could actually be a value add because line of business owners and senior management, thought leaders, whoever, whatever you would think of them as in the business, right? The people that are spending money and making decisions about how we should and shouldn't do things. Those people, unfortunately, don't always get the opportunity to sit in a room together and think about these things. And even when they do, they don't set, seem to focus on these kinds of conversations, right? We're, you know, we all work with customers and all have our own businesses and are driven by the bottom line. And listen, profitability is, is equally important too, and in some respects, perhaps more important to um, anything else for some companies. But I think they're all clearly missing the idea that risk mitigation, right, can equal better profitability over time. I don't think anybody would argue with the fact that if you prevent breaches, you're going to be a better off in the long term. And you know, I, I just see this time and again where companies are missing this idea of how to integrate this DevOps, which is just the latest iteration of what we call it, with this thought process of how to build security in from the beginning that Chris was talking about. And build it in for the long haul. You know, it is a very short-term transactional thought process instead of a, a significant investment in the betterment and ultimately the safety and health of the organization from a strategic perspective. And because it's being treated as a transactional one-off solution at pain point only, right, Bill, to your point, as risk damage control, it is, I think, fundamentally preventing that culture of security from taking hold in anything but the most transactional and really fleeting way. And I think that has a lot to do with the history of where it comes from. We all know that or hear people say that security comes out of IT. Well, because IT was always looked as um, something to keep the business going rather than be a fundamental part of the business. It's just looked as that cost center. And we need to pivot the conversation and say, how can IT and security enable the business? Okay, what's what's the business mission? What are you looking to accomplish? And how can we do so in a secure manner or even do so better than the competition because we're doing it securely, because we will have that better brand reputation, because we won't be on the headlines like our competition will be, or we'll be able to deliver packages while they're busy rebuilding their infrastructure. 
I completely agree with that. I think so many times IT in general, including the security team, lose the company mission aspect of things and get focused on the IT part. Right. That's right. And that's where, for example, like the, the CRR, the Cyber Resiliency Review from DHS that is set up more as a um, questionnaire for the business to evaluate how your how resilient they are in regards to their IT and security practices, but it asks it in a way that is related to business mission. So for this aspect of the business, how are your security and IT practices supporting that business mission? And when, once leaders start to see the answers there, they, they might realize that, whoa, um, I'm not really doing so good in supporting that business mission with, with our current practices. True, okay. very true. Let's move on to another uh, topic uh, in our items to discuss. So we sort of talked about the common sense test uh, a little bit at the very beginning, but to expound on that a little bit further, what is, let's talk about what is the appropriate level of root cause analysis we should apply and how come we don't apply a common sense test against what we as a security and IT T people expect the end users in the organization to do. Chris, why don't you why don't you start off? Okay, so for root cause analysis, I think oftentimes when we analyze the, uh, an outage or something like that, we stop at the technology, but we don't focus on the culture that is behind the implementation of the technology. Just because that backup failed to work okay, why did that backup fail to work? Why wasn't it highlighted ahead of time? Why wasn't it tested ahead of time? It's that resilient culture that failed to be there. But in most root cause analysis, it's like, well, the technology didn't work or um, the technology failed us rather than we didn't look at it or analyze it properly or test it on a regular basis to prove that it was working. That's a great point. Um I was doing some research recently. Um, they were talking about the Israeli military and um, all of their elite units. I mean, that's one of their very strong points and why they continue to become so much better. Is after every operation they do, they have a um, complete uh, root cause analysis or uh, uh, post analysis, whatever you call it, even after, after successful missions, mm-hmm. to figure out what they've done wrong, what they could have done better. Uh, and because of that, they continue to improve. And continuous improvement is critical. I mean, um, in, in the medical field, they tend to do postmortems only after someone deceased or passed away. But um, we should learn from what we did good or even exactly. their misses um, to how, how we can continuously improve and, and do that all the time in different areas. Because while we might not have had a, a failure and backup test it, make sure it still works, or uh, switch over to a different ISP, or tear down a piece of the infrastructure and make sure that it works, just to make sure that it works. Yeah, sometimes it's good just to step back, get out of your normal mindset of things, and take a different look at it. Well, it, it definitely. I, I agree with everything you guys said. I think it, it also more broadly, right, and more fundamentally speaks to 
one of the key issues that is blocking our ability to create a, a culture of security and awareness and action, right, that is sticky and not, uh, as we've talked about, transactional, but is ultimately strategic in its vision in the organization over the long term. And I think it's a combination of the fact that there's no sense of ownership, right, among most practitioners and, and people at that point of interaction in the organization. So, you know, the person who would have been theoretically tearing down that system that Chris just described, tested, or would have figured out the backup isn't running successfully if they had done their due diligence, right, isn't doing it because they're not motivated to do it because they don't have a sense of ownership, because there aren't clearly defined roles, responsibility is best, right, um, vague, and accountability may or may not exist depending on how you define it in an organization. And the documentation, which should exist and should be used to drive those reviews of systems, is lacking probably more often than not, not even up to date, let alone perhaps even existent, as we've all seen, right, across client engagements. And, you know, when you stray away from basic fundamentals like change management, like, you know, the, the blocking and tackling of configuration management, which ultimately allows you to create that documentation and do the things that we know all of us have to be done to banish these issues. Because they're not being done, we do see direct cause and effect. I mean, you don't have to look very far to understand why root cause analysis isn't going deeply enough in the organization. I agree with what Chris said that you know, we do tend to stop at the system level. You know, and the methodology should be keep asking why to hit bedrock, not keep asking why to you get tired. Right. right, right. <laughs> and because we stop asking why when we see a convenient answer that allows us to claim victory. Right. Make us happy and, and look it on paper. We stop. And that's exactly why we don't get to the underlying causes of things that are more hard to deal with and are scarier and more fundamentally disturbing because they, they really question what people are doing and whether they're doing the right things, not for the right reasons, because I don't think. More often than not, most people act maliciously on purpose in most organizations. But I do think they're acting out of a lack of understanding of how to create, right, as opposed to, unfortunately, uh, how to you know, just ride the wave and not really work too hard. And it's hard to motivate people when there isn't a sense of ownership, but it's also hard to motivate them when they're not directly threatened. And... It is, I think, easy for us because especially of the cloud, and I'm not maligning the cloud when I say this, but let's be honest, transference of risk has made it that much easier for IT professionals to say they don't have really a lot of control and therefore they don't have a lot of responsibility as we shift these systems into the cloud. Well, Microsoft or Amazon or Google are doing that because now it's in their data center. All we have to do is log in every so often and make sure there's no blinking red lights, right, that are glaring <laughs> at us on a on some sort of a, um, a dashboard. But the fundamental blocking and tackling is taking place somewhere else. And that's actually the exact opposite of what should be happening. And mm -hmm. as a result, it's become very easy to be complacent and therefore to feel you, you're doing the things you're supposed to do, even though you're not. I, I mean, you, have, have, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say real quick, do you think that the lack of your point, a couple points ago, your, the lack of, um, ownership of these issues or the lack of um, in-depth analysis has to do with the way our society is trained. I mean, for example, if you think about elementary school, the child asks why all the time is told to be quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're taught to conform with the way everybody does things. 
I definitely think that, yeah, it does. And even going up to high school and, and college, um, your, the amount of research that you have to do is decreasing and people are not having that, that fundamental curiosity at, to dig in why and figure out why and research why. So as soon as they can give you the first why, they're done. Yeah, I mean, look, tribal knowledge is the root of most evil, right? The reason we do it that way is because we've always done it that way, right? Is, is the answer you never want to hear, but unfortunately, the answer you're almost always given. And I call it tribal knowledge. People call it different things. But, you know, that that knowledge passed around the proverbial campfire, right, is, mm -hmm. is at the heart, unfortunately, of most of these ills. And, you know, look, when I was growing up, and, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly – um, long in the tooth in this industry. But, you know, I grew up, you know, in the United States. Not everybody does. And I grew up in an educational system that is perhaps better than some, but not as good as others. And the reality is, you know, at the time I grew up, um, you know, you still had these issues. You weren't always encouraged to ask why. That's probably always been a fundamental issue because, you know, people don't like to be inconvenienced and have to stop and actually explain things. They just want you to pay attention and kind of do what they tell you, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of human nature. But, you know, I think the worst thing we do as parents, as individuals, as we grow up is lose our curiosity, right? And, and not encourage that to your point and others. And, you know, I tell my students all the time, if you ask a question and the answer doesn't make sense to you, it's not that you asked the wrong question. It's that the person that's explaining to you didn't do a good job. And it's yeah. your job as a student to call them on that and force them to step back and help you understand it. If they can't do that, you got to go find somebody else who can because they're not good at their job. It has nothing to do with you. You're not a bad learner. They're a bad teacher. And, you know, being an educator, I think, has given me a very unique perspective throughout my entire career because I'm always reminded of the fact that when I talk to customers – it's essentially like talking to students. They're coming in with a lack of understanding of the things they've asked me to engage around. It's my job to help them to understand them, not to get them out of the room as quickly as possible because I don't want to deal with that. That's exactly wow. right. Exactly right. Uh, we see that yeah, probably 10 times more magnified because we deal with small businesses. They have completely no idea what – they know they need security, but they have no idea what it entails. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree there. And individuals looking to break into the industry are the same way. They, they, they know that this is an industry that they want to be in because they see the headlines, but they don't know why. They, they don't know what, where they want to go, what they want to do. And when they ask me for advice, that's the first thing I say. Okay, which aspect of this very wide field do you want to start to learn in? Because you have to figure out a place to start. If you don't like it, that's fine, but figure out where you want to start first because being a generalist in the beginning will make your life really hard. Um, <laughs> if you could focus on one technology, get good, and then start to learn other things, that's the way to go. But if you're trying to learn it all at the same time, you're gonna you're in you're in for a rough time. Yep. You know, it's interesting though, right, Chris? Because you know, I'm laughing. I mean, I heard Bill snickering, I think, as well when you said it, because I, I think we're close in age, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting because when I started out, um, that was not the case, right? You, you, you didn't specialize, number one, because there wasn't a lot to specialize in. And number two, you had to be a generalist because you had to be good at a lot of things in order to be able to do IT 30, 40 years ago. 
because the systems were very different, right? We didn't have a lot of the modern things we think about. There was no cloud. There was no internet, right? <laughs> I mean, I am a dinosaur. And, you know, um, virtualization was essentially non-existent. And wireless didn't even exist in a meaningful way outside of labs. I mean, it was a very different world. There was no centralized directory service. There were, you know, a lot of things we take for granted today just didn't exist. And as a result, I, I came up as a developer by training as well as an IT infrastructure professional by training. I spent time doing both and I was very good at both for a long time until I got to that break point you described where I had to start focusing on one to be able to do my jobs effectively, and I chose to go the infrastructure route. I don't actively write code anymore, but I still have those skills, and I can still understand code and write it if I need to, but I just don't actively do it often enough to be good enough at it to say that I would want to do it for a customer. Well, but, don't, don't get me wrong, because I don't want to say don't be a generalist, because, for example, consultants, pen testers, they have to know a little bit about everything to... Um, break into something, to be able to pick that lock, to be able to um, get past that firewall, to get past that password on the OS. Um, they have to know a little bit about everything, but they had to start somewhere. They had to start with once focusing in one area and then expand. I'm not saying that they stay in, say, firewall log management for the rest of their life. They'll probably be very good at it, but start there figure out how the firewall works and then pivot out from there. Because once you, you have an area that you specialize in to begin with, then you can see how everything relates from that point of view. But if you try to go too broad too early, you don't know how the fundamentals work. True. And you know, another, another piece I can throw into that is even myself, as I look back is even under all that, you got to have that internal curiosity of how does that work? What makes that do that? Probably if I can break that and find out how that does that, I can do mm -hmm. that. And that driving passion right there will build from there. And it will spread out because you're always digging and find out why, how, what if, and, you know, those questions. Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, right, the death of curiosity was coupled with and I think directly correlatable to the rise of the Internet and the search engine, right? Because <laughs> you know, the reality is for people of a certain generation, right, I – like to your point, Bill. Yeah, I, if I wanted to figure out how something worked, either I threw it on the floor, broke it apart, figured it out, and put it back together again, or I went and looked it up in a mythical place we used to call a library, where they have these <laughs> mythical creatures called books, right? And you know, you don't. You look at kids today, even young, young, you know, professionals today, and you know, the answer is never, I'm going to go figure that out. The answer is, well, Google or Amazon, Alexa or, or Siri or whoever said this. And, you know, I think if we took devices away from people, I honestly think they'd be like robots without batteries. I think they would just die. They would just essentially <laughs> stop moving. And I find it very interesting to Chris's point and to our discussion about it. Chris, I don't disagree with what you said, by the way, at all. I think generalization is very important as an aspect of it. And I do think that you need to start out building the basics firmly a thousand percent agree with you because if you don't understand the basics you can't understand how to specialize to your point and i i definitely agree with what you said i was just interesting it was just interesting to me as you were saying it that you know it was very different not that long ago and i think that the rise of certain technologies to even though i joked about it i think it's actually a very significant serious point in some respects has really changed the face of what we do and how we do it and it's made it better for some things 
But I also think it's just dumbed down the average human to the point that they just don't really, Bill, to your point, they just don't have that innate sense of curiosity that at least I find as I, I had as a kid and I still have as an adult. I talk to people that just don't care most of the time. And I think that's just unfortunate. Yeah, whenever we talk at conferences or whenever we talk to new people, we always say, if you want to work in security, get a lab, get your hands dirty and learn. It's the best way. Yep, break it. Tear it apart. Put it back together. Learn it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, technology definitely helps with that these days because now you don't have to spend as much to get a lab. You don't have to go down to the dump and um, find... Ten years ago's model and bring it home and put it back together. Um, you could go to DigitalOcean and spin up a copy of a Windows XP and and play around with it there. But um, so it definitely does offer more opportunities, especially for those from from different backgrounds, and they, they might not have had either access to or exposure to or the financial means to develop their own lab. That you can you can just have a laptop that has more than say 16 gigs of memory and um, some hard drive space. And here, here you go. You spin up a whole new OS and you have a whole new world to investigate now. That's very true. It's very true. Well, we had to stop the podcast there because we were having such a great conversation that we went on for quite a while. Um, the total recording ended up being over an hour and a half. So, We cut it there, but on our next release, we're going to release the second part of this recording, and there's a lot of things for you to learn in there, so be sure to come back and check it out. But in the meantime, let's do a quick recap of some of the things we've talked about. We talked about doing root cause investigations and not to stop until you're at the actual root of the incident. Go deep. Figure out what caused the incident. What is the user behavior that caused it? Uh, we touch on many things, including continuous improvement is vital for your organization's security program. And we talked about your users. Uh, because your users know what's right and what the right thing to do, it doesn't mean that they are going to do it. So what are the, some of the things that you can implement in your organization to be sure that your users do the right thing? You can make it convenient for them and provide incentives. We talked about the uh, signs next to the trash can to incentivize the users and make it convenient by putting the shredder right next to it so that they know to shred those documents. So those are just a few of the takeaways from this conversation, but there are, of course, many, many more. So be sure to check out our next episode of the podcast, and you can get the rest of our conversation with Chris and Adam. Until then, we'll see you later. And that's the SMB Cybercast podcast. Thank you again for listening. Please check out our other white papers, roadmaps, and webcasts at www.cyberx.tech resources and our blog at www.cyberx.tech blog. We have lots of guides and roadmaps to help you improve your cybersecurity program. Go check us out, and we'll see you next episode.